Welcome to the Ready to Thrive podcast. My name is Jacqueline, and I don't know if you've ever felt like you are just surviving your life. I know I have, and that's why I created this space. I want to help you move from surviving to thriving. My goal is to help you get unstuck and actually enjoy your life. Each week, I'll be sharing practical tips and always point you to Jesus. So what are you waiting for? Let's get ready to thrive. Hello and welcome to Ready to Thrive. This is our second episode in our Thriver Stories series and I'm excited to share with you the conversation I had with Erin Soto. Um, One of the interesting parts of Erin's story is really the role that stress played in her life. The ongoing prolonged stress um, is really one of the things she would pinpoint um, cancer in her life. And so um, Erin shares about that part of her story, not only overcoming cancer, but really learning how to de-stress. What does it look like? What What is the role that chronic stress can play on our body and how does that kind of happen and how do we do something about it? And so in this series, I'm sharing with you as well some of my favorite tools for thriving And I think last week I shared with you that I've taken a few things to really help my gut. And one of them is a product called Mentabiotics. And in Mentabiotics, it is a specific um, strain of prebiotics, probiotics, phytobiotics. And there is a specific strain. I don't know if I can even pronounce it. It's Lactobacillus ramesses R0011. Anyways, this specific strain actually helps target stress in your body by lowering your body's cortisol exposure and it helps improve your GABA neurotransmission. So it's actually helping reduce your body's stress. The cool thing in this product, Mentabiotics, is it helps your body increase your good bacteria and in some of their clinical trials they saw 60% decrease in irritability scores, 55% decrease in anxiety scores, 50% decrease in depression scores, and a 49% reduction in overall distress. So, Mentabiotics has been one of my tools I've been using to thrive in this season alongside two other products that um, all get paired together. Uh, as happy juice. And I'm going to link that in the show notes as well. If that's something you want to check out, you can also message me for more info. But that's been something that has helped me thrive in this season. Welcome to Ready to Thrive. I am sitting here with Erin Soto. She is a wife, mom to four kids, cancer survivor, author, speaker. Her book is called The Mother of All Fights. Everything cancer taught me about living a full and vibrant life. And I just can't wait to hear more of Erin's story um, going back pre-cancer diagnosis and really um, all that she went through in fighting what can be um, really the scariest moment, um, scariest season someone can walk through. So Erin, thank you for being here on Ready to Thrive. Thank you for having me. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here and to share my story. So I appreciate the time. Well, I would love to dive into your life um, pre-diagnosis, and you talk okay. about this in the book, which I love because you kind of talk about how not that this diagnosis was inevitable, but things were pretty stressful in your life. Yeah, you had a lot of things you were walking through, and kind of the role that that even played in um, where you ended up. So, tell me a little bit about what was going on in your life leading up to that. Yeah. So I, I often say I was living what is often I could describe as the typical overly committed mom and wife. Um, I have four kids, so that's not totally typical for the most people, but, but, you know, in terms of just being overly scheduled and, um, hustling full steam ahead. And that was my normal. And in many ways I was so used to it. I just, I frankly put my self-care and ignored 
what turned out in hindsight to be really alarming red flags that my body was signaling to me that something was wrong. And I ignored them because I was just so busy uh, dealing with the messiness of life, if you will. And um, I talk in the beginning of my book, I kind of start off introducing you to what that looked like. And it's, again, it's, it's a commonly shared pain points that I think a lot of parents or moms or many people just in this season of life experience where you recognize you have room for improvement. I, I often say I was, I say I was a, a student of self-development for years because I was aware that my lifestyle practices and pace were unhealthy. And I was trying to make changes and improvements to live a healthier and happier version of my life. Not that I was unhappy before, just I knew that there was room for improvement. And it took <laughs> something as terrible, sadly, as cancer to finally get me to force me to make those changes and get it right. Um, but yeah, leading up to cancer, I was just um, bulldozing through life, taking care of my family, and I ignored for about four or five months some of the symptoms that something, physically speaking, was going wrong. And I do share in my book that I was dealing with stress. Um, and when I share my cancer diagnosis story, I talk a lot about stress in my book because I feel like, again, the doctors, and I'll, I'll share when I do the diagnosis story, the doctors told me there is no way to pinpoint or identify the cause for my cancer. So after I was diagnosed, I was told I didn't have a genetic predisposition for developing the disease, no family history. It didn't make sense. And I looked back at, you know, I left and I talk about integrative healthcare. I let my doctors treat the disease, but I was looking at what was going on in my life leading up to it. And one of the things I talk about leading up to my diagnosis was I was under an extreme level of chronic, intense chronic stress. Um, to a degree that I really believe my body was starting to shut down. I don't believe, I know, I don't see any coincidence and timing of the onset of my symptoms aligning with when I was starting, like when I started to exhibit the physical symptoms of colon cancer, it was following what I call a mental and emotional complete meltdown and breakdown from eight years of chronic induced stress. And I don't see a coincidence in the timing there. I really have learned a lot since about the mind-body connection, which I dive into in the book. But looking back at what was going on in my life, that was sort of how I ended up ultimately connecting the dots of figuring out what could have possibly contributed to my developing disease. Cause I believe that stress is one of the main factors, at least in my case, that the chronic state of distress and disease ultimately developed disease after eight years, because it was just too long to be suffering in a fight or flight mode. We all know it's bad for you. Your doctors will tell you, you know, stress, you know, changes your body on a hormone. If you're out running a mountain lion on a trail, who's chasing you, it's great to be in a state of fight or flight, but it's not good to stay in a prolonged state of chronic stress for too long. And it ultimately does catch up and take a toll on your overall well-being. And that's really what I ultimately discovered or what I pinpoint in my case. And I talk a lot about in my book, dealing with chronic stress, anxiety, and ways to cope with it because I think it was not dealing with that for years leading up to my diagnosis that ultimately got me into the position that I found myself when I ended up becoming sick physically. Well, you worded that so well. Um, and anyone reading the book can read about all of the, really the situations you guys found yourselves in um, financially. I think that's one of the things that, um, many of us can find ourselves in right at this moment mm -hmm. with um, what's been happening over the last two years with inflation, just things that are going on. I think maybe even not having had, you know, if you've been somebody who hasn't felt like you've had a high level of stress, for many people, they've been on this train now for at least two years. Yeah. What would you say to people who, or even what would you say looking back at yourself, knowing what you know now, what would you encourage people as something practical to do? Because the hard thing about stress is it feels like there's not a lot I can do. I'm just in this, right? Like there's certain things that feel so yeah. big and it's really hard to um, 
right? Sometimes we're stressed because we're like, it isn't a quick fix. There feels like there's nothing I can do about this. So what would you, knowing what you know now, what would you say to either yourself going back or somebody who's finds themselves really in the thick of it right now? Well, and you're right. I think the state of the world, especially these last two years, we are seeing high levels of mental and emotional health hazards, right? People are having um, anxiety attacks, depression, stresses through the roof. I mean, you turn on the news and that alone for after five minutes, I get, I get sick to my stomach, especially right now. So yeah. And then what I, what I also know is, and I'll tell a little more about my backstory of the stress I was dealing with just a surface level as an example, but the stress that I was when I say chronic years of stress for eight years, I share a very vulnerable story in my book about how my husband's former business partner had sued us. And basically we were dealing with chronic levels of stress that were induced by the financial and mental and emotional impact of being stuck in a horrific lawsuit. And as parents of four who were young, trying to start off our life, we were paying you know, offensive sums of money to defense attorneys at the pop of like $10,000 every other month, but for eight years. And so instead of buying groceries or shoes, or, you know, even my, my relationship began to struggle because you cannot exist with that kind of pressure on you without it reaching into all areas of your life, including my marriage, um, how I felt as a mom about providing for my kids and feeling completely helpless because this wasn't a case we wanted anything to do with. And it also felt completely out of our control because we couldn't make it go away. And then when you take what we were going through, and again, that, that was so hard to navigate and um, the stress levels were through the roof. But then on top of that, right, then you get the pandemic, which hit and cancer diagnosis. And all of this was happening November, the end of November, 2019, start of 2020. So I had all that going on all at once. <laughs> My life was completely just a hot mess spiraling out of control. And I realized that I could not continue at this pace any further. Quite literally, my survival was on the line. So you're right. I had to figure out how to deal with that. And let's just talk about what you do when you're dealing with a state of stress that is completely out of your control that you can't do anything about, for example, cancer, right? That's not something you can just remove from your life um, as a stress trigger. And so I had to learn how to process stress and cope with stress in a much more healthy manner than I had ever done up until that point in my life, because I discovered just how poisonous stress can be to our bodies. Um, you don't need me to remind you, you can talk to your doctor about that, but how surviving in that chronic state of intense stress for years, um, is just dangerously long and it ultimately took a drastic toll on my health, but these other triggers like cancer diagnosis too, now I had to deal with even more stress and these unhealthy hormones in my bodies, I, I had to get control over what to do to move forward. And I don't think you get over certain things in life. You learn how to get through them. And this worst experience for me was an opportunity for the first time ever to figure out mindset and perspective shifts and mental and emotional inner work that I had to complete and practice and not perfect, but get better at. And I go into actionable steps in my book of what that looks like. And so one of the chapters in my book, when I talk about dealing with stress, um, is I, I, I study a lot of the science behind our thoughts. I, it fascinated me when I was doing all of my research on stress and disease. And one of the things I discovered is we have 6,200 thoughts a day on average. Recent research has proven. And so I decided to become really tuned in to my body, my thoughts, and how that was impacting me physically speaking. So an example I share in the book is you can take a thought like I had when I was first diagnosed of, I really don't want to die. Right. And then I could take that thought and realize, man, that is not helping me. That's making my stomach churn. I feel my, my heart rates up, my, my blood pressure is rising. And then I could take basically the same thought, but choose another form of it. Like I have so many reasons for why I want to live. Let's think about those. And it's just a minor shift in perspective and mindset, which I ended up saying mindset to me was the greatest form of medicine there is because I understood that how I reacted and responded to the thoughts in my head and the world around me would be, you know, the reality of how I perceived the world around me and everything that was going on held a connection to my ability to finally getting through it. 
And so that is a habit, one of the habits of health that I teach in my book about recovery of learning to become really tuned in with your mental and emotional triggers and how you react and respond and then forming healthier habits of changing unhealthy ones that you may not even realize you've fallen into a rabbit hole over years of allowing yourself to do. And it takes daily, I say it's daily doses of happiness or healthy habits of practicing mindfulness really. And it, and, and it gets easier and I give actionable steps and tips for how I did it for myself so that you can try it for yourself. Um, and I also, one of the resources on stress before I, I end this, this little stress soapbox talk, one of the great ways to measure stress in your life. And I want to share this resource because we're on this topic and it's again, a really important one to me. Um, if you're thinking, oh my gosh, I'm really stressed out in my own life right now, just like you said, um, I wholly recommend taking what's called the Holmes Ray life stress inventory test. Um, you can just Google that and find it online. There are a lot of websites that do this, but it, for me, it was a turning point in discovering how much stress I'd actually been living under up to my point of diagnosis. And it was developed by two psychiatrists, Holmes and Ray, back in the 1960s to establish at what point in life, uh, basically at what point disease, stress creates disease and illness in your body. So your result can pull you over because you take this test and it makes you more aware of how you can better serve your body by keeping your stress to a minimum or at least identifying where you're at in terms of the scale. And there's three factors and it can, it measures life stress inducing factors like losing a job, a health catastrophe, um, going through a divorce, um, legal troubles. I mean, all different areas of life, things that happen, there's a, like a list of 80 of them or something, and they all have a different number and you add up where you're at. And it will tell you within the next two to three years, if like I was off the scale, you're likely to develop a form of disease or in the next five to 10 years, if you don't change things, you have a possibility or your likelihood of developing disease is high. And this is again, a test that's been around since the sixties. It's been tested the world over across the decades. It's a test many doctors and psychologists use today. And it's held true over 50 years and more of really kind of indicating how bad stress is and recognizing at least for yourself where you fall in a healthier and unhealthy range. Well, I really appreciate that. I look back at one of the most stressful seasons I walked through about eight years ago. Um, there was a number of things going on. One of them was that my parents ended up losing their dream home they had built um, to foreclosure and they were given like mm. two weeks notice. It was highly stressful. I ended up having a miscarriage right after that. My dad had a major heart attack. Um, and oh I went gosh. to, we had went, to, they were visiting us, went to the hospital and it was just like, you kept seeing all these things happen. Mm -hmm. And it's like, of course, because we've just been walking through this extreme amount of stress. And I want to talk about kind of what you talked about earlier about processing it, because it's not that we can avoid things yeah. in our life. Um, one thing I thought that you shared that I thought was very interesting, um, I've had a woman named Dr. Caroline Leaf on my show and she is a, um, what is the word now? Okay. I can't think about the word, <laughs> whatever her official title is, but she talks about how the, the brain, um, has a neuroplasticity to it and really how are, when you look at the brain, the thoughts we have the life-giving thoughts can really actually look like thriving trees, whereas the thoughts that are negative or toxic look like um, dying trees. And so the example you gave there of having that little bit of a shift, um, I think is kind of pausing enough to be self-aware. And with practice, we can have those pauses enough um, because again, we have those things pop up in our life, those thoughts that pop up. Um, and we can often feel stuck in them and we can feel stuck on the hamster wheel of this is the thought. I don't want to die. I don't want to die. And it reminds me of my five-year-old who will often come up to me and she will state her problem. And the problem is they got to watch a show. They got ice cream. Why don't I? Whatever the problem is that keeps her stuck. And I often say to her, you are, you are just repeating the problem. 
instead of asking for the solution or whatever actually could help you. So in that moment, you could say, mom, can I watch a show? Mom, I would also like a treat or whatever the thing is. It it just shows me how we can be in that place of discouragement, frustration, and really, um, I would talk about them in that uh, sense of planting a seed that really turns into a weed, that we're cultivating those weeds in our life instead of planting um, something good and life-giving. And again, it doesn't mean that we don't talk about the hard things, right? Your uh, example didn't change. Like I can really share about challenging things in my life without complaining, without being stuck in that kind of whiny five-year-old place, uh, making that shift. In some ways, that shift into something that I can do, something I can control, which I think is a big shift when we are faced with things where we do feel powerless, stuck, stressed. Uh, and I think for myself, that feels like that's part of processing that stress. Yeah. Um, and I wanted to ask you as well, you hit this point when you received your diagnosis where you were aware that something had to change. Yeah. And so I would just be curious to know uh, for the person who feels like, yeah, I am carrying a ton of stress or I know, okay, something has to change, but what, but how, um, what were some of the things for you as well that you were like, okay, this is, this is going to change. Like what has changed in your life since then now going forward? So much. Um, and I was one of those people who I think knew, like I said, I was aware how unhealthy I had been and that things were bad. Uh, my husband too, like he didn't get a cancer diagnosis, but during this season of really high level chronic stress, when things got really bad, um, toward the end, he had, I thought he had a heart attack in front of me one day. He collapsed on the floor. He was throwing his arm up. He had chest pain. I was starting to have mental and emotional meltdowns, extreme anxiety attacks. I mean, shutting down for days. I've never had anything like that happen since or before, but I realize now, like, how do you get through this? And so for me, what I would say to someone is I understood and I talk in my book about how I had to process and sit in these really, really, really uncomfortable places um, I never really wanted to go to before. And, you know, this is when you're healing, when you're talking about mental and emotional health, it's, it's inner work, right? It's changing how, how easily a slight subtle shift in perspective or a thought can have a drastic change, but also it's doing the inner work. And for me, like, for example, the cancer diagnosis, you know, cruelly interrupting my life smack in my 37th year before I arguably had my fair share of living what I felt was the better half of it. And I realized that they determined the best way to find, I felt like I had lost meaning and I was grieving and I was fearful and I was heartbroken and I was stressed beyond measure. And I determined here's how to wait, the way to get through this and to find meaning again is just embracing the part of life I have left. And that requires doing the inner work that I say, going to new depths within myself. And I think the diagnosis, and for me, my most stressful event was what sparked in a rather unexpected beginning for me. It, it was a pivotal day that transformed my life, like a wake up call. Like I have got to start taking better care of myself now and my family. And I embarked on this wellness revolution to reclaim control over my health and happiness and my stress levels. And I decided I was going to use the whole experience as an opportunity to become more deeply present in my life, connected with my body, kind of in the examples we just shared, paying attention to my thoughts, how I feel about them and engaging with the world around me and my reality. And more importantly, I realized I could do all this despite all the chaos suddenly surrounding me because this was kind of like bringing light into your darkest season. Because for me, it was, you know, hopefully for someone listening, they aren't dealing with cancer <laughs> because for me, this was almost a survival do or die reaction. Like I knew I had to figure out how to process all of this more healthily than I ever had before. And what I ultimately say is I kind of worked through this process of grief and fear and heartbreak and shock. And I talk about that in my book, um, in the chapter after my diagnosis part of the story. And I sat in it and I felt it and I grieved and I cried and I allowed myself 
to really feel all the hard feelings and really think about it and just sit in it. But then I realized several days in, and I talk about how when you kind of recognize yourself going down a rabbit hole, and I think compared to many cancer patients, I know people tell me I quickly kind of jumped up out of that state of suffering a little faster than most. And there is no right time for everyone to do this. But for me, at least I arrived at a point where I didn't want to sit and cry. It wasn't serving me anymore. And I kind of came to this um, awakening or a point of acceptance, like where I was right then as a cancer fighter. And now what I say, it's like my fighter warrior mentality where I accepted by no means is letting go of, or ignoring the emotions that you have to experience to work your way through this. But at least for me, accepting it was coming to this place of just really coming to peace with all of it. And I had reached that point where I was ready to put all of my energy towards surviving whatever was to come and thriving through it. And it's not like, I, when I say acceptance is not the same as resignation, I mean, it just means that no matter what happens, you've got to find the courage and strength to kind of come up and use this as an opportunity for growth. And for me, that like, cancer was my greatest teacher. Um, and it helped me ultimately regain a sense of control of what it's like to face the hard things in life wholeheartedly. Um, and that's kind of how I got to that place of working my way through it. And, and I would just, I think it, it's a, it's a cycle and it's a process and you reach a point where you kind of are ready to dry your tears and put one foot in front of the other. And I got to that point actually really quickly, like within a week following my diagnosis. Well, I love that you shared about giving yourself permission to grieve and experience and feel everything. Um, it can be easy to try to um, just like, well, I'm going to embrace the positive. And you actually talk about this idea of toxic positivity, positivity mm -hmm. uh, that I want to ask you about as well. Um, because I think it's a challenge, like even where we live, like we are in North America, things are pretty good, right? Even when things are hard and it's easy to be in a place where we can say, you know what, whatever I'm going through, like it's not as bad as what someone is going through on the other side of the world. It's not as bad as this and, and kind of not give yourself that permission to grieve. And really that is part of the processing, even the stress. And I think over the last two years, um, I've given myself permission to, when I felt it yeah. to, to grieve, I've joked about this, I think even on the podcast, um, about not being able to go to Trader Joe's because uh, we are 10 minutes north of the United States border that was closed for about two years. And I used to go to Trader Joe's at least once a month, if not twice. And it was like, it's been my happy place for so long. And so I began to see things in my spice cabinet or whatever. It's like they would start to dwindle and I would like take this item and I'd put it in the recycling and be like, we're done with that. And I would just have my moment. And I'm like, this, I know this is ridiculous in light of all that's happening in the world. Yeah. But I'm going to let myself grieve even the little things. Yeah. And again, that you can be sad for 30 seconds, five minutes, whatever it is. Um, but every time something would pop up in the last two years where I'd walk into a store and be like, oh, yeah, I have to put a mask on. Whatever the weirdness was, just letting yourself yes. grieve that Thing allows you to process. It, um, it allows you to grieve through that. And I think it's really helpful because allowing yourself to even grieve the small things, I think really conditions you to be able to lean in and grieve those hard things. So mm -hmm. I um, had shared, I've shared a few times on here as well, that I had a miscarriage about a year ago. And so I feel like I've been processing and even grieving that all of this year. But when it pops up, when I'm falling asleep at night and I have a thought or memory and it's like, oh, there's tears, yeah. allowing yourself, that's your body's way of saying like, hey, right? The tears are coming. It's like, we're sad. We're going to grieve this loss. We're going to go there and we're not going to spiral out and go down kind of this path of, uh, you know, I... I'm very good at Enneagram 4. I don't know if you know much about Enneagram, but I'm great at the lament at being in that place. But I also know for myself that can be a place where I can get stuck as well. So what does it look like to give yourself that permission without, again, with the mindset, not thinking, 
I'm stuck over here, but what is the sort of mindset shift? Um, I'd love for you to unpack even that concept of toxic positivity. Yeah. And I think it's, it's a habit that many of us put on. It's a cultural and societal shift because of, I think, generally speaking, and I talk in the book how when I was just had been diagnosed, right? And I, I give the example of the school mom at pickup when I was in my angry phase and I was judging her for, you know, kind of falling apart and being stressed out about, you know, what in the grander scheme of life, her kitchen remodel compared to cancer. And it's not a comparison situation, but I was angry and I was judging her and I realized that. And I think we have, our, our society expects us to not talk about or not share vulnerable, often it's it's like kind of taboo, it's politically incorrect to grieve or to, to talk about these things. We kind of, when someone says, how you're doing? Oh, I'm fine, thanks. And I've learned that I spent many years of my life kind of in this state of not wanting to make other people uncomfortable around me. And so I would try to put on, and I talk in my book, I didn't share what was going on in my own life, even with some of our closest friends, when I talk about the lawsuit and everything my family had been going through, we just didn't talk about it. There was a small circle of people I was really honest with and that I could turn to, but it wasn't enough. And that's because we have this kind of our society and the norm is to, we kind of, especially in the last decade, there was this thing about positive emotions and how good they are for you and how being happy is important to your well-being. And it's true. It's one of the lessons in my book that I talk about thinking more positive thoughts and trying to incorporate more joy into your life is really important because these thoughts and feelings of joy, when we feel happy, worry-free, we're in flow, our physical bodies start pumping powerful immune responses throughout it. Like just like stress, for example, has the effect of causing your body to sometimes create disease and increasing the likelihood of, of negative, um, of negative physical impact, but increasing positive emotional state does the opposite of that. It can help you heal. And, you know, you get flooded with healing hormones with a mood lifting effect, like serotonin, dopamine, endorphins, oxytocin, relaxin. And so these healthy healing hormones are so good for you. They help you absorb nutrients. They lower your blood pressure. They help your immune system. They do all these great things. They help oxygenate your cells through breath. And so I had this, I feel like for a long time, I felt like we needed to try and be happy because we didn't want to put stress on other people. We didn't want to, if I felt like I was being negative Nancy or feeling, you know, sorry for myself, that was a sign of weakness too. And so I found that, you know, and then there was this whole push of like the positive affirmations and all of these self-help books that were coming out about a decade ago, really pushed the power of positive thinking, which is really powerful. Like I said, it can help with healing, but I think the problem with that, then there's kind of more recently been this backlash against a lot of these self-help practices that were really popular. And that's when toxic positivity came in. And for those who don't know, toxic positivity is like the overgeneralization of a happy, optimistic state of being that results ultimately in your denying or minimization in, of an authentic human experience, right? And so I found that I had this habit during seasons of stress and strife with my legal and financial struggles. I had a bad habit of overusing positivity to mask the pain. And ultimately I just caused myself a lot more harm and grief leading to more suffering that trying to be positive was intended to diminish. So anything done in excess, like when your positivity or positive state of mind is used to silence that experience that you're really needing to process, that's when it becomes toxic. So I think it's safe to assume nobody wants to be viewed as like Debbie Downer. I say that or negative Nancy, we might be tempted, you know, rather than being real and brutally honest in conversation with someone, we pretend that everything's awesome and we're fine. Thanks. Even when we're not. And I think that is a huge, that's one of the biggest changes I've since incorporated into my life. Like you were saying, especially in the last couple of years, I think we've all gotten a lot more in tune with that and it's okay to not be okay. And it's okay to say that you're, you're battling with depression, anxiety, or you're going through a really hard time and it should be more okay to talk about safely among friends. And I think for me, I just never felt comfortable until cancer, where it was like, I had to talk about what was going on with me because people knew, you know, that I was going through this. But before that, I always tried to put off this fake facade that 
um, that things were well and good unless you were part of that inner circle. And I've since realized when I say, you know, as much as mindset being your greatest medicine and, and trying to increase feelings of joy and happiness, one of the best ways to do that, as you said, is to also allow yourself to process the other feelings because that's the whole point of the human experience is you're going to have highs and lows and you can't ignore what your what your body is feeding you to process it's i think the 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 practice is recognizing when you're starting to spiral down a state of misery and suffering and in this vicious cycle and you need to kind of recognize that you can you can kind of come up and out from that rather than stay in that state of being and that's where i try to offer some techniques and tips and tricks to work through that in a more healthy way to kind of get yourself back up and out. And again, there are things in life, just like you were saying, that you never will get over. Traumatic crisis, loss of loved ones, grief, you don't get over everything, but you can get through it and you have to learn how to get through it and process those things in a healthy way, allow them, process them, and then figure out how to recognize if you're staying there for too long. You mentioned that you had kind of this wake up call yeah, when you got your diagnosis, but also that it really changed how you felt in terms of being present and your overall wellness. So I would just love to know right now in this place, um, what are things you do to stay in a place of being present as well as how do you care for your overall wellness? Yeah. So you know, what I learned from the experience ultimately transformed so much about my life, um, so much about my life and being more present. And I think it, I, I often call it the wake up call. It inspired me to take better care of myself. It taught me how, um, I needed to listen more to my inner guide. It brought me back to my roots in nature and, um, spending quality time with family and friends and connecting more deeply with people um, who fuel me and make me feel good, but also kind of force me to pause. And, um, I was, had to get very, very mindful with my time and energy because I had limited amounts of it. I was sick. I was going through treatment. I was in and out of the hospital often. And when I was home often, I wasn't physically in a state where I could waste my time and energy. So I was forced to get really deeply present and live each day and each moment and make the most and not, you know, again, I was very mindful about who I was with, where I was with the types of conversations that were being held. And I, um, what, what I've learned today, or there's habits of health that I go into in my book and really what those there, I call them the pillars of health and happiness. And those kind of revolve around what I ultimately learned is I, I had done all this research following diagnosis, which is what many people do when you've been diagnosed with a health catastrophe. For me, I wanted to know everything there was about cancer. And one of the books and many of the research uh, articles and blogs and journals I read was I noticed there was an underlying, if you will, I discovered there are many cancer survivors around the entire world who share a consensus in steps that they all took, that they all agree and believe played a powerful role in their ultimate recovery. So I share what those steps are in detail in my book. It's all the things I wish I knew before I had cancer and the same practices that today I still use to avoid recurrence and to protect my family from developing it, but it's the same steps to living a more quality, happy, healthy life. And so some of those, just to give examples, um, I learned that you know, the connection between diet and disease and how a nutrient-dense plant-based diet can be a powerful game changer when it comes to disease and as well recovery and how the standard Western diet often depletes us of our energy, but how dangerous, um, you know, not being aware of, of what you put in your body can, can vastly affect the way you feel, your mental ability, your fogginess, and physically speaking. Um, and so making changes with what you eat, what you put on your body, right? I mean, these are the first things people usually address when they have cancer, right? Uh, you're, we all know we're being, you know, there's environmental toxins, your personal care products, your household products, learning how to be more mindful about exposure to that. And then the less addressed cancer causers or common cancer contributors, which again, the common, what I say, stress, mental and emotional well-being, and that mind-body connection, healing movement. I talk a lot about how moving is so good for your head and your heart and your strength, but also I feel like rest and renewal and 
forcing yourself to take adequate time to be more present and to pause and to slow down. And I feel like you find more joy when you're not hustling on a hamster's wheel, which many of us are, but cancer for me was kind of an excuse to unplug and really slow down and become very present in the moment and how much that helped in my overall recovery and how the other part that I talk about is um, prioritizing more time for play, right? When I talk about rest and renewal, play is a big part of that. It's something we need to take more seriously, doing things that fuel you, that make you happy. And so again, there's those pillars of health and happiness. And I go into, you know, these sustainable changes that are meaningful to improve mental, physical, and spiritual well-being. I say that in order to treat disease, we have to treat the whole person, mind, body, spirit. Um, and with my personal experiences in hand, that is actually why I wrote the book. It's what I feel most committed to do in helping others is taking charge and reclaiming control of their own health and happiness. And I do that through the lessons in my book and um, my online programs, like a living well inner community, which is launching in June and kind of everything I've established since, which is kind of turning around to help the next one in line with everything that this has taught me, because I don't think you have to have cancer or a crisis to adopt these. I think, I, you know, for me, cancer was my greatest teacher and I want to share the lessons it taught me to living a better life so that you recognize the ones in your own life they can help you learn to improve upon too. So good. Well, I love that you shared about really the, the whole self and even focusing on those things of uh, rest and play. And I think for so many of us, at least what I hear from women, from so many moms, um, is this sentiment of getting through a season and then you know, like we'll live kind of for the summer vacation. It's like, I just have to get through soccer season. I just have to get through this work push. Just have to yes. get through. And I feel like, but that's your life right now. And we can live with the mindset of, and I see women who are exhausted. They're pushing their bodies so hard Um and for very good reasons, they're doing things for their kids, for their family, for whatever it might be. And I think, you know, you had a wake-up call. It's awesome if we can make some of those changes without having to get to that point of saying like, okay, here's this massive wake-up call. Um, and maybe that, if someone's listening now, this is your wake-up call to say, you know, when is enough enough? When will you actually say my, I am tired. My body is telling me that something I need to actually stop and rest. Things have to change. And I, I know for us a few years ago, um, we just were in our regular habits and routines and, um, somehow I always say like my, whatever my husband is doing in terms of his habits, I will follow like two years later. I'll just kind of, it takes me much longer to get there. Um, but really there was a fight for okay. us and not an actual fight between us, but a fight for us to learn how to rest well. And we had both experienced burnout at different points in our life with work and his ministry and other things. And, um, and we had to do things differently. And mm -hmm. I always say to people as well, it, sometimes it's a process, like it takes time and it takes time to break old habits, whether it's talking about like, I have to talk about money. So like spending habits or how we learn to rest, how we play, whatever it might be, those things take time. Um, but really stopping to look at say, what do I want my life to be about? Who do I want to be present to? Right. Asking some of those really hard questions. Yeah. Um, I had to go into those places like during my time in the hospital. Right. Cause if I, I had to think if I only have three to five years left, how am I going to make the most with the time I have left and what really matters? And have you, I'm sure you've read, I mean, at some point I think there, it's an article that's done many times over by many journalists, but I was always fascinated. And when I was sick with cancer, I came across an article interviewing um, hospice patients and their greatest wisdom, life wisdom, and lessons on what makes a quality led life. Right. And I could relate to it personally at the time, because I didn't know if I'd be here today. And one of the things that really hit home for me was how 
up until I was truly forced to face the very real possibility of my own death, like the high likelihood and possibility of my own death. When I look back and reviewed my own life perspective, what would I do differently? What would I change? And there were some powerful changes my husband and I did make that, again, we realized the quality of life to me is lived by, and I realized it's not um, the years you have in it, but by a amount of lives you touch in that time. And for me, my husband and I had to make major changes because, for example, he had been working in a job that was really stressful. He worked 60 hours a week. He owned an office. He's in real estate with 250 agents. He was part broker owner. So they were all his employees. He was responsible for all those lives and their well-being. He was miserable for years at work, stressed out, burnt out. Plus, we were trying to pay off the legal expenses and fees. And he was just so unhappy for a really long time. And so was I. And again, it doesn't, hopefully it won't take cancer for someone listening to give themselves the permission. We had said for probably two or three years, there were several major moments where we looked at each other and said, we have to change things. We cannot keep going. We can't, I'm not happy. Not like I'm unhappy in the marriage. I'm just not happy. And I'm so, I'm struggling and this is not good. And we're not we can do better. We have to do something different, but we just didn't know where to change. Well, cancer turned out to be this. I mean, we had sort of reached that pivotal breaking point. And I talk about it where he had made the choice to change his job, not what he's doing, but instead of running a company, he basically demoted himself also out of default because it ended up being, he had to take care of the kids and the house and do pick up a lot of the things that I physically wasn't even capable of doing anymore because I was sick. And now that I'm better and I've been better for, you know, a while now, he hasn't gone back to his old job. He has no desire to change because he has never been happier than he is right now. He has a really healthy work-life balance for the first time in 20 years of real estate. And he gets up in the morning, he, his pickleball is his form of play and exercise. He's obsessed with pickleball. I have, I mean, obsessed, like obsessed, but he plays probably five days a week. And he goes in the morning before work starts and he has balance. He's able to coach my kids teams after school and COVID, right? A lot of people now work from home. He could go back to the office, but he doesn't want to. He chooses to work from home. Again, we've changed things about the way we just thought that's how it is. This is how it's done. And he has never been healthier or happier. He's in the best shape because he's got balance of work life like it's a really healthy place for him right now. And same with me. I will not, I am very, very, very protective of boundaries and, and um, respecting them and understanding when I need to unplug or take a little time off. And I just, I, I gauge that I, I prioritize it. I protect it. And I think that again, these aren't things that we do when you're sitting there. Like if you were me three years ago or four, Four years ago in that really, really pivotal moment of feeling just like you need to do something. You don't have to do it overnight, but if you're feeling that way, then that right there is your cue. It's time to figure out something because if you keep going at this pace, inevitably something unexpected will happen and you will unravel and hopefully it won't be a cancer diagnosis, but you can't, I have learned, look at my life and use me as an, ex as, a, as your motivating factor or encouragement Tomorrow is never a guarantee. I woke up and was diagnosed with a late stage three colon cancer, one of the deadliest forms. And I'm lucky to be alive, but it could have gone the other way. And I may not have had tomorrow and you may not have tomorrow. Tomorrow is not a guarantee for any one of us. That's the truth. And so I try to encourage people that if you're feeling like you're in this place where you, your life is messy or you're like needing to make adjustments or improvements, I want people to listen to that inner voice and say, you know what? Today's the day to start living like I mean it. And start making small, tiny changes about your life. And it doesn't have to happen overnight, but like over the course of three months, you can do a lot. And give yourself permission to do that because you're not here to suffer through life. At the end of the day, you're not. So I hope that ultimately we can encourage people <laughs> to feel more alive than they ever have before through taking self-care a lot more seriously. Well, that's so good. Um, I just think even what you said, I think that's where we'll end the idea that you can start today. So whatever that thing may be. And I think often there is one thing, one area 
that we can feel a little bit more um, kind of drawn towards whether, I mean, it could be just rest, right? It Mm -hmm. could mean what does it look like to book two hours a week to say that's two hours where I'm not on, I'm not Mm -hmm. doing anything. I can go for a walk. I can, or play, like what does it look like to do something like pickleball just for fun? Um, As parents, I think it's very hard to um, invest time and money into our own play. But I always want to say to people like that has dividends for our kids because they will see us like when we are like happy mom, happy kids, Mm -hmm. right? Like it it makes such a difference. So uh, you can start today. I really loved uh, you sharing that sentiment. Erin's book is called The Mother of All Fights. Erin, where do people find you and where do they find your book? Yes. So you can find me on uh, TikTok, Instagram, Facebook at author Erin Soto. Easiest place to go there. And then there's links to my website and online programs and everything from my social channels. Um, And my book is available globally. So distributed the world over through Amazon. Usually I think 80% of books are sold through Amazon. So I always say that first with Barnes and Noble, any really any global book distributor. And it's that there's an audio book or the paperback copy or the ebook. So whatever, if you like to listen, I think sp- sometimes stories are, I personally like to listen to my books. So I made an audio book for that reason, awesome. but um, listen to it, go for a jog and go on the journey with me. Cause my hope at the end is that it will help inspire you to make those changes. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Erin. I trust this has helped you move one step closer to thriving. Can I just say thank you for listening? This space has been incredibly encouraging for me this past year. And as I am being deeply encouraged by these conversations, I trust you are as well. And I'm not going to ask you to rate the show or subscribe, but I am going to ask if while you are listening today, a friend popped into your mind and you thought, hmm, I think they could use this encouragement. Can I ask you to share this episode with them, with one person? When I listen to podcasts on my phone, there are three little dots at the bottom right, and I click there to share. Also, can I say sometimes I don't share with others as I'm worried about what they'll think of me if they think I'm bugging them by sharing something, but when someone shares something with me, I am never bothered. Often it is the exact thing I needed to hear. So if someone popped into your mind, click those three little dots and share this encouraging conversation with them. And thank you for listening to Ready to Thrive.